Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your work of grace in our hearts to draw us to yourself. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's at work in us. You tell us that we should pray and that you will respond to our prayers. And so we come in our weakness today, thankful that you are strong. We come in our confusion, glad that you're wise. And we come in our depravity, glad that you're pure. We pray that you would make us like yourself, work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 1436. Anybody know what happened? Gutenberg's printing press. Of course. And it revolutionized the production of books. It made science, religion, and um, art uh, available to the masses in the way that nothing before it was able to do. We're told that the Black Plague, the Russian Revolution, and uh, Watts' steam engine had similar kinds of effects on people. They are called watershed moments. A watershed moment is some critical turning point when something changes and things are never the same again. The chapter from which we just read a few moments ago, Acts 13, is what we might call a watershed chapter in Luke's history of the early church. Uh, the spotlight moves from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Peter to Paul, from Palestine to the Mediterranean world, and most importantly for our consideration, from a focus mostly on Jews and reaching out to near neighbors to now a new mechanism for getting the gospel to people that don't have it, a missionary team. Christians at Antioch took seriously Isaiah's words. I will make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And the Lord has been in the business of that movement since those words were spoken by Isaiah. I wonder, might a watershed moment be a good thing for you? Change? So that things are never the same? I think the truths of this chapter might provide that kind of opportunity. Our topic is really, in question form, this. Can my witness for Christ make a difference? Can my way, can your witness for Christ make a difference? We're looking at Acts 13, verses 4 to 12. If you have it in front of you, uh, just on the side, I think it's chiastically structured, and I think we're going to get right to the heart of the thing in a wonderful way that really strengthens our faith. Now, Luke's flow of thought here is pretty easy to understand. It's easy to follow. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit has sent you to bless our world. And then he goes on from that to say, you're not alone. The, Ho the Holy Spirit is guiding you. And thankfully, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you 
because you can expect opposition. And finally, you're not alone. You can expect the Holy Spirit to make you a blessing. Well, you're here to bless our world. Isn't that a great thought? Remember back in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to give you a helper who's going to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him. He dwells with you. He's going to be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. No orphans today if you're a follower of Jesus, regardless of how you feel. Now, the same Lord called his people to be his witnesses. Uh, we checked it out weeks ago, Acts chapter 1, verse 7. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the very ends of the earth. And so when we come now to Acts chapter 13, verse 4, what do we find? Paul, Barnabas and Saul, being sent, they went. That's what it reads. Being sent, they went. What a promise, what a calling, what a privilege. The king of kings places you here to make a difference in the lives of very needy people all around you. But that's not all. Please look now at verse 5. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is guiding you. And so we read, when they arrived at Salamis, by God's appointment there in that city, and step back with me just a little bit and think about Paul's missionary strategy. He wasn't just flying by the seat of his pants as he pursued the ministry that the Holy Spirit had given to him. Salamis was an important commercial center. Large Jewish population with a number of synagogues. Paul chose strategic locations when he ministered. How come? He wanted to plant churches that could serve as regional lighthouses. And so we're told, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That was the work, part of the work, to which the Lord had called Paul and, or Saul and Barnabas back at the beginning of the chapter. Why start a ministry to Gentiles in a Jewish synagogue? Well, there's one obvious answer. Because there were Gentiles that associated themselves with synagogues, there were things about a Jewish lifestyle that they appreciated. And these were called God-fearers. And so as Barnabas and Saul go to the synagogues, that also puts them in touch with their target audience, Gentiles. And then one other detail that emerges here. Please look at the end of the verse, and we're told there that uh, they had John to assist them. In other words, this missionary band functioned as a team. We have Barnabas, we have Saul, now we have John. He is somehow added, uh, perhaps because of Barnabas' relationship with him, he was invited to be part of this group. Business leaders are now paying attention to the Navy SEAL code. Do you know why? Because they suspect that that code can help them build more effective teams. 
You want to be part of a better team? Well, first step in the code is this. Build a culture of trust and loyalty. And isn't that a good word, whether we're talking about husbands and wives or families or you name the unit. Well, that's what Barnabas and Saul and John are about here. They belong to the Lord. They're committed to his mission. They've been called together for this task. And the results of their work in Salamis, well, look, it's really something. Despite the population center, despite its strategic location, despite the fact that we have synagogues and God-fearers, despite the fact that we have a team of effective missionaries, Luke records no movement of the gospel whatsoever in that town. How come? Well, the Holy Spirit has sent you to bless our world, and the Holy Spirit guides you along the route that he's given you. But what about no progress here? The Lord has something else in mind. He's aiming Barnabas and Saul at Gentiles who are beyond the reach of near neighbor outreach. And so that brings us to verses 6 through 11, which I think are the core of this section. Makes up the largest unit in verses 4 through 12. Thankfully, in your witness for Christ, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you, even in the face of opposition. That's what we find next. Now, first of all, notice the distance. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as, far as Paphos, what was that like? Well, the distance from Salamis to Paphos, if you consult the dictionaries and believe them, they say it's about 90 miles. But a traveler would not go directly because of a big mountain range in the middle of the island. They'd have to go down the eastern shore and make their way around. And on the way, they would have gone through probably six different towns or cities um, 21 miles down the road, and then another 13, and then another 34, and then another 15, and then another 20, uh, and finally 10 miles, and they get to Paphos. Uh, quite a trek. And when they get there, what do they find? Look at verse 6. We're told they come upon, apparently they weren't seeking him, they come upon a Jewish false prophet who is a magician named, of all things, Bar-Jesus, the son of salvation. Talk about ironies. Now, of course, magicians were forbidden in Jewish contexts, but Cyprus is a more pagan place, and uh, Jewish influence was not so pervasive there. And so magicians, Jewish magicians, were told, were well known on the island. 
Verse 7 tells us that Bargesus, or Elymas, as he was also called, was with the proconsul, the governor, uh, Sergius Paulus, who probably had a one-year appointment in his job. And it's speculated that uh, this magician served Sergius Paulus as an advisor. Romans were more inclined to think about magic and to believe in it. And so it may have been the case that Sergius Paulus had hired Bar-Jesus to curse his opponents. Whatever the case, Sergius Paulus is interested in Barnabas and Saul. Uh, and I think that verses 7 and 8 are really the most important parts of this whole narrative. They clearly focus our attention on outreach to Gentiles and on our personal witness for the Lord. So there we read, Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Can you see it there? Opposition is developing. This is going to be a power encounter. So let's just pause and, and think a little bit about what's in front of us. First of all, we're told Sergius summoned Paul, uh, uh, Barnabas and Saul. Now, that word summon is used about uh, 29 times in the New Testament, and every time it's in the middle voice, which means summon to himself. He wasn't asking them to go to a, uh, uh, an office party. This is a personal meeting that he wants. And for what purpose? Well, look again at the end of the verse. He sought to hear the word of God from them. And that verb, sought, can also be translated, he wanted to, he desired, uh, he, de he, he investigated, he craved, he was intent about, he longed eagerly for. I mean, there's purpose and there's passion expressed by Sergius Paulus here. This is no passing whim for him. And look at the end of verse 7. He wants to hear the word of God. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment. Just hold that idea. But let's say to ourselves, wow. A Gentile, he's interested in the word of God? Hmm. Now look at verse 8. The magician opposes uh, Barnabas and Saul, and he tries to turn Sergius away from the faith. Now what's going to happen? Bill made reference to it. It is a very blunt, direct address from Saul now to this magician. What's he say? You son of the devil. Whoa. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and wrongdoing. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then in verse 9, this judgment on him. You will be blind 
And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Raphael has a wonderful painting of this. It's a striking, striking picture of this man struggling to find his way. Can your witness make a difference? You're not alone. The Holy Spirit has given you to this world at this moment to make a difference. He's guiding you. You're not alone in your witness even when there is spiritual opposition. And one more truth here about your witness for Christ. You're not alone so you can expect the Holy Spirit to make you a blessing. Look at verse 12. So we read, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, don't two truths emerge here? On the one hand, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He resists the magician. He gives grace to Sergius Paulus. God brings darkness to proud unbelievers, and yet he opens the spiritual eyes even of faraway Gentiles. God will frustrate the efforts of those who are self-centered and self-serving, but he is at work in those who will seek him with a whole heart. Now, if you're like me, there is a haunting idea that arises in your mind when it comes to the subject of being a witness for Christ. And it runs something like this in me. You can't be used by the Lord. Don't you know how weak you are? And if you do try to witness for Christ, what will people think of you? I mean, they'll see you as just being an oddball. You'll fumble around and you won't know what to say. You'll embarrass yourself and them. And instead of being a positive influence for the Lord, you will just end up bungling things. Instead of advancing the kingdom of Christ, you're just going to make it worse for the gospel. Bottom line, you can't do it. And nobody's going to be interested in anything you have to say. It is a very effective strategy if you want to promote unbelief. Anybody here succumb to that strategy? Nobody. I'm all alone. <laughs> Well, all right, return with me now to Sergius Paulus. That didn't go very far. <laughs> now, he's a Gentile, and he comes to faith in Christ after, as best we can tell, one hearing of the gospel. Isn't that a confidence builder for a chicken like me? Based on this passage, nothing could be farther from the truth than the idea that unbelievers are not interested in spiritual things. Remember what Jesus said in John 4? After telling the disciples to look up in, uh, at the fields that they're white to harvest, he goes on and he says this, I sent you to reap 
that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. In other words, the Lord is preparing people. He's preparing people. So when the gospel comes to them through your witness or my feeble witness, the Lord just might use that to draw them to himself. I mean, who's at work in us anyway? Is it the Holy Spirit or are we orphans all by ourselves, not able to say a peep for the Lord? Once made a hospital visit to see somebody that was sick. And from my vantage point, as I was moving through it, it was a disaster. First of all, I promised to be home in a very short time. And when I got there, Bill, the patient, uh, well, he had to go in the bathroom. And so he's in there a while, and what do I do with myself as the, talk, the clock is ticking? Well, I, I might as well get to know his roommate, I thought. So I went over and talked to him, and he had plenty of problems. Uh, and so we talked for a while, and finally Bill came back out. And uh, then I'm thinking pre more pressure, and... I got to read something, and it looked like uh, it looked like the roommate didn't really know the gospel, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to do something simple. We're doing the, the 23rd Psalm. It's short. It's familiar. Maybe that'll be a blessing to him. And just about that time, who comes in the door? The nurse to administer the meds. It was very inopportune, you know? Well, plunging ahead, I say to myself, what am I going to do? I got to get out of here. And so I say to everybody, I, I interrupt the nurse, I say, uh, I want to read the Bible and pray with you. And then I turn to Bill and I say, Bill, I know some of the things that you want me to pray about. Um, George, you've told me some of the things while Bill was in the bathroom. I got things for you to pray about. And then it dawned on me. Should I ask Peggy if she has anything she wants me to pray about? And I do. And she says, she pauses, and to my utter astonishment, she says, now that you ask, to be perfectly honest, I've been trying to have a baby, and I can't get pregnant. Would you pray for me? And so we all prayed together. And I went away from that experience thinking to myself, you don't believe people need the Lord on one level. And you don't believe that people has, that the Lord has primed people to be responsive to him. And look what just happened. In less than ideal circumstances, you were able to pray for Bill, his roommate, who has lots of problems, and now Peggy, the nurse. So I want to encourage you this morning now, since nobody has been willing to confess any sin when it comes to being hesitant to witness... I want to encourage you to repent. <laughs> repent of your lying in front of me. <laughs> and repent of your hesitance to pass on your faith. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead can give you boldness to speak for him. This is a watershed moment in the book of Acts and it can be a watershed moment in your life if you will turn in faith to the Lord and ask him to give you grace 
so that you can be bold in your witness for him. Turn from your unbelief. Witness to make a change in our needy world. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask you to bless it to us in such a way that we do turn from our preoccupation with ourselves and our inclination to protect ourselves and to worry about what people are going to think about us and help us to be bold in sharing our faith with whoever you bring across our path. We ask that you would build your church this day, draw many people to yourself all around the world, especially among those that seem to us to be the very most unlikely 